God, I pray you'd be with us this morning, God, that you would speak through Michael, that you would just open up our hearts to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And while you're doing so, if you'd turn to Romans chapter 8, <clears throat> Romans chapter 8, and we'll be looking um, verses 28 through 34, verses 28 through 34, Romans chapter 8. Um, but before we get there, I have some questions we need to, uh, to settle and, and work through, make sure we're all on the same page. First of all, what is an advocate? It's a big word. The last word in our statement up there says he's our high priest and advocate. What is an advocate? Okay. Someone who works and speaks on behalf of someone else. Can you give me an example? An attorney. An attorney. Yes. Uh, about 15 years ago, <clears throat> we, uh, we sold a house. And then a year and a month later, a uh, sheriff knocks on our door and says, I'm supposed to give this to you. And found out that we'd been sued for uh, supposedly not disclosing something about the house that we sold. Um, and at the time, I was, we were sort of freaked out. You get that, that pit in your stomach of, we've been accused of something we didn't do. That's not fair. That's not right. They can't do that. And then, what are we going to do? I don't have a clue what to do next. Um, what I didn't know was, is that we already, because of our insurance, we already had an advocate. Made a phone call and someone did paperwork and took care of all the details and arranged everything. And there was very little we had to do other than, you know, give depositions and worry some. But we had an advocate. It was really nice that someone stepped in and kind of took all those burdens away from us. So that's what an advocate is. Um, so besides that example, when in, in general life do we need advocates? Question number two, kind of some background. Um, day in and day out, when do we need an advocate? You're not worthy to come before the one who are trying to speak to you. See if they have somebody worthy of it. Okay, can you give me an example in, in just the in the here and now on planet Earth? When does that happen? Okay. Bring back to U.S. You've got the president. You have to go. You have to go to the congressman or somebody with or hire someone higher up than the authority. Right. Okay. Anything else? Yes. Um, I think of children, especially like in foster care or something, and they can't speak due to their inability, their youth, their ignorance. And so they have child advocates that go to court on their behalf. Good. Exactly right. Anything else? To get the idea, right? <clears throat> Why do we need an advocate before God? Okay. He's holy and we're not. It's as complicated and as um, simple as that. But, but wait a minute. But I would say that I'm saved, right? 
I mean, I just read, therefore, I mean, back up, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, if I already have peace with Him, why do I need an advocate? Why was that, why would that be necessary? Someone else has written. <laughs> In First John. these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Okay. So even though we may have a relationship with God and have peace with Him, uh, there is still sin present in our lives, and as uh, someone said, God is holy and we are not. Right? Still applies. But, it's okay, so the, the last sort of introductory um, question, who's, a, who's accusing us before God? Usually we need an advocate because something needs to be spoken or said, or sometimes... Is in our case, someone was accusing us of wrongdoing. Who's accusing us? The devil. Yes. We read in, in Scripture, there's examples. Uh, Job being one, Zechariah another. Um, he's called the accuser of the brethren. I don't know about you, but I've never been in the throne room to really know what that looks like or how that goes on. I've not been privy to that other than in Scripture and getting an example that looks like. I'm not privy. I don't know what he says about me. There's a, at least in, in my experience, there's, um, there's, a, there's an accuser that's, that's more prevalent in my life. My guess is, is that there's an accuser that's more prevalent in your life than the devil as well. And who is that? Some of you already know because I saw you pointing. And it wasn't at Bo. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's me. I mean, it's me. Not for you, but it's you for you. Our greatest accuser, I, I think, is, is probably ourselves. Uh, through sin or through life experiences, uh, through doubt. Uh, our own behavior or someone else's behavior that's caused us to feel shame or guilt. We simply sometimes have it in our minds, this idea that, that we're not worthy, that we can't approach God's throne. Scripture bears that out. We, we go back all the way to the garden and we, we look at Adam. Who was Adam's first accuser? And it wasn't Satan. By Satan accused God, did God really say? Right? And then after there was the eating of the fruit, 
What is the very next thing that happens? Remember? No, before he blames Eve. He felt shame. And what did he do? He hid. There was no accusation from Satan that we know of. Did God accuse him? God just says, where are you? God's just seeking him out. He's pursuing him, which is what God always does. There's this pursuit. And we know that there was self-accusation because he felt shame and he hid. I'm not worthy to be in God's presence. And God pursued him. And so I think this passage that we're about to read is, is relevant to us. Yes, because in one sense there is an accuser of the brethren, but we accuse ourselves and feel shame and guilt that's mustered up in our own mind as much as anybody. We fail to understand that God is in the process, has always been in the process, and ultimately was in the process of pursuing us in the Incarnation. And so we read beginning in verse 28 of Romans 8. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth that is in it. We ask that you would open our ears to hear and our minds to understand. And ultimately, God, that you would change our wills to be obedient and to believe what you have said. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. A couple of, again, some preliminaries. In Romans 8, 28, number 1, he's talking to believers in this passage. Um, And so right off the bat, one of the things we need to make sure that that we're aware of is what he says doesn't apply to me if, if I have not accepted the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. And what a better way to celebrate Christmas than to understand and accept the incarnation on, on my behalf. So first he's talking to believers from verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. He's talking about believers, that He works things in our lives for good. Ultimately, it's it's His good and His glory, which, if we're following along in that plan, is ultimately our good as well. Second thing we need to be aware of is the end result is guaranteed, it's assured. Um, 
It goes through that long list in verse 30. Those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. That's past tense. But I'm looking at you and none of you look glorified to me this morning. So how does he say that? How does he, how does he, how does he have the, the gumption for Paul to look at it and, and knowing who he writes to, knowing the humanity of who we are, that he says, you're glorified. Then he says to the Ephesians, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Now, I know that you may like these new chairs, but these are not heavenly places chairs, right? And yet those things are in, in the past tense. So, he's talking to believers. The end result is assured. And then the third thing we need to keep in mind as we, as we talk through this this morning is that the process sometimes is painful. He says in verse 29 in the middle, He also predestined us to become conformed to the image of His Son. When you conform something into a different image that requires some sort of messing with, a tool to, to shape it or change it, sometimes heat, sometimes there's sparks, sometimes there's sharp edges. Conforming into something different can be painful at times. So we have to keep those things in mind. He's talking to believers. The end result is assured, but the process to that end result sometimes can be painful. Okay, that's just some, some things we've got to keep in mind as we, as we walk through getting to the idea that Jesus is our advocate. So, some questions this morning. Paul asks, after that introduction, he says in verse 31... What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? So, first question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, my initial thought is, well, all kinds of people can be against us. We've talked about Satan already, but... Our friends and our family and our neighbors and those that don't like us, there's all kinds of people that can be against us. But is that what Paul's really asking? Is he really asking, do you have any enemies? Well, we know from the context of Romans 8, of course they have enemies. He's talked about tribulation. Talked about it in 5, he's also talked about it in 8. He's talked about difficult times. So he's not really asking, do you have any enemies? What's he really asking? He's not really asking me. <laughs> he, that's exactly right. There is no one. That's exactly right. It's it's couched as a question, but knowing what we know, if God is for us, who can be? In other words, nobody. You're on the right side. You don't really have anybody that, that can be against you. And then it's the next phrase that kind of helps that to sink in. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? In other words, he 
He's already given us Jesus. See, sometimes I think we... It's easy to complain. If, if only I would know that God loved me. I would know that God's on my side. I would know that God is my advocate if He would just... We fill in the blank. Whatever that just is. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's a money issue. Maybe it's a direction issue. Maybe it's uh, figure out His will issue. Maybe it's a, a neighbor issue. Maybe it's a sin issue. I know that God would really be my advocate. That He really loves me if... And Paul says, wait a minute. There is nothing better that God could have given than His Son. And sometimes we just let that sink in. We just don't let that kind of wash over us. Of all the things that I might wish for and want for, peace on earth and goodwill towards men and all that stuff, He's already given us the best. Whatever it is that I may want for Christmas this year, I've already been given the best. God Himself became flesh and died for me. What else could I possibly want? What else could I possibly need? And then He says, if He was willing to do that, won't He also freely give us all things, and in the context, all things that are good for us? So we may think that we need something and that that would be good for us. Probably we we just don't know. We don't know all the ramifications. There is no greater gift. Question number two. Verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Again... Scott said, it's one of those things, it's a question, but it's not really a question, right? Who can bring a charge against us? Well, again, that person that sued us can bring a charge against us, right? Satan, the accuser of the brethren, but that's really not what he's saying. It's a question, but it's not a question. It's a statement. Who can do that? And again, we keep reading and we know why he, that question is really a statement. God is the one who justifies. God is the one who makes the final decision. People can complain about you all all they want to, Michael. People can complain about you all they want to, Mark and Wes and Carissa. God is the one who justifies. He's the one that makes the final decision. There are no charges that someone can bring. And yet, what we do, well, what about that sin? And God says, yeah, and that one too. And I've justified that sin as well. And that one, 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 and that one. Whatever it is that you can muster up to thumb your nose against God. Christ paid for that on the cross. He took that sin. He allowed that punishment that we deserve to be His. God is the one who justifies. There is no accusation for God's people.
God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised. The, the proof of the acceptance of that sacrifice. Who also intercedes for us. Second reason we know that no one can bring a charge against us is that it wasn't just this one-time thing and then Jesus is somehow absent from the scene. He's at the Father's right hand interceding for us. I don't know what that looks like anymore. I know it looks like that Satan is accusing me. But I know that the one who justified me has not left the scene. It may be as simple as when an accusation is made that Jesus says, I took care of that, remember? I don't think God needs to be reminded. So I don't know if we've created this situation that's not not real. But at the very least, Jesus' presence at the right hand of the Father is a, a reminder, if we can speak that way, that I'm justified and that that sin was taken care of and that accusation has no basis in reality of how God views me or sees me or treats me. And then at, at the most, that, that word intercession is someone coming into someone's presence to make a request. So it's not just... Um, that he's denying the accusation, there seems to be, because of the way that word is used everywhere else, the idea that, that he actually is interceding for us. What that looks like, I don't know, but I'm glad someone like him is. I don't know about you, but I need all the help that I can get. And so as our, our advocate, he has taken care of the guilt. He has taken care of the shame, most of which we self-create. We're good at playing Adam and hiding. And sometimes that looks like busyness, and sometimes that looks like addiction, and sometimes that looks like anger, and sometimes that looks like depression. It looks like a lot of different things but we're good at hiding. And our advocate has taken care of those things if we will trust in Him. So the last question is, so what? And we can talk about all those things and say, okay, that's good, but so what? Well, first, do you accept, have you accepted His love? Have you accepted His sacrifices? We said at the beginning, Christmas would be a, a wonderful time if you have not done so come to the realization of I can't do this life on my own. There is guilt and there is shame and I don't know what to do with it. I can't work hard enough to replace it. And God says, come to me. Will you accept the death and resurrection of my son as payment for your sins? So the first so what is we, we look at our hearts and, and if we have, we remind ourselves of, oh, I I have done that. I have accepted His death and resurrection on my behalf. And that should change our outlook on life. Number two goes along with that. If we've accepted that, the command really is, do we believe in His love day in and day out? Or do I allow 
guilt and shame to, to play those recordings in my mind? Do I, do I doubt that, that God really has taken care of that sin as well? Do I believe that, that He loves me? That the incarnation wasn't just this one-time thing, but that God continues to pursue us day in and day out. Will we buy into the truth that God loves us and wants a relationship with us? And that He has justified us? And that He's in the process of conforming us into the image of His Son? And that one day we will be glorified? And then third, the kind of the active responses, are we willing to walk in the Spirit? Again, in the context of, of Romans chapter 8, if we back up to verse 12, as, as Paul continues to kind of rehash this justification thing, he's been talking in 6 about the fact that we had died to Christ, and that that should change us. And then in 7, he brings in the idea that we still don't do the things that we want to do. And then in 8 says, there, but there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But then down in 12, he says, so then, brethren, we are under obligation. There is this call on our lives, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Again, backing up to the beginning of 6, why not keep sinning that grace may abound, right? There's that nagging question that should bother us. If I'm really justified, then what? difference does it make what I do, right? That temptation should show up every once in a while. If God really did what He said He did, then does it matter? And Paul would say, yes, it does matter. So we're under obligation not to, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so our obligation is to walk in the Spirit, to, to trust God as we obey His call in our lives to put to death those things that are displeasing to Him, that continue to, to dredge up shame and guilt. Are we actively in the process of putting to death the deeds of the flesh? And for each of us, that looks different. Some of us struggle with anger. Some of us struggle with lust. Some of us struggle with doubt. Some of us struggle with pride, with gossip. Are we actively putting to death the deeds of the flesh? And do we have people in our lives that know us well enough to say, you need to work on this. How can I help you? How can I pray for you? And then are you doing that for somebody else? Are you involved in people's lives enough to come alongside them and say, how can I help you walk in the Spirit? As we prepare to celebrate the incarnation and what God has done for us, I want us to remember that God has pursued us from the beginning. He longs to have a relationship with us. And He's made that possible through the death of His Son. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us rest in that peace this Christmas season. Let us rejoice in that peace. And let us use that peace to, to continue to allow the Spirit to conform us into the image of His Son. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, the encouragement that is in it, the reminder of what you have done for us and your Son. God, may you be glorified in our lives this Christmas season. God, I pray for us as a body that we would find peace. I know for um, many of us, uh, a year when loss took place, and it's a struggle, so I pray that you would encourage us, remind us of your presence. I know that for many of us, um, being around family sometimes can be more difficult than it is joyful. God, I pray that you would allow us to be peace to our family. Give us opportunities to share your love and your joy and your goodness with others. Help us to be kind and patient and loving and sacrificial. And in short, conform us to the image of your Son. And may others see you in us. We look forward to the celebration that is ahead. And may you be glorified in all that we say and do. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.